This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In segment two today, we're going to have a guest we've been seeking for, I think, a couple of years. P.J. O'Rourke will be joining us. Uh, They noted American humorist you've seen on Bill Maher's Real Time. You've heard on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. And and you've undoubtedly run into his written works in numerous magazines and perhaps, perhaps have read one of his books. This correspondent's been quite a big fan since the uh, since the mid-70s when he wrote, uh, I think, what is the funniest thing I've ever read. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Currently, P.J. Rourke has a book titled On the Wealth of Nations, where he talks about uh, the contributions made by Adam Smith. Smith's contributions to the field of economics and political thought uh, still reverberate. He was ranked by Michael Hart as the 30th most influential person in history. And we look very forward to talking with P.J. O'Rourke about Mr. Adam Smith in segment two. Stay tuned. For the moment, we'd like to begin the show as we, uh, as we do each week with On This Date in History. On today's date, which is February 1st, and yes, there are two R's in February, and both are pronounced. In 1861, Texas became the seventh state to secede from the Union over the issue of slavery, doing so despite the objections of its first governor, Sam Houston, who predicted an ignoble defeat for the Confederacy. Radio Parallax is unable to confirm whether this was the last time a Texas governor accurately forecast the outcome of a war. On February 1st, 1887, real estate developer Harvey Wilcox subdivided 120 acres in Southern California and called the development Hollywood. On this date, February 1st, 1960, four African-American students, upon being refused service at a Woolworth lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, staged a sit-in. Similar protests in other southern cities during the next few days led to the arrests of more than 1,600 people. The The four black youths were attacking the social order of the time, lest we forget that the unwritten rules of Southern society at that time required black people to stay out of white-owned restaurants, to use only designated drinking fountains and restrooms, to sit in the rear of Greensboro City buses, and in segregated bleachers during sports events. All four men would emerge unscathed and eventually be recognized as heroes of the civil rights movement. And our quote of the day comes from Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Our statistic of the day comes from Money Magazine, which noted that 5% of Americans qualify as compulsive shoppers, with almost the same number of men as women. This is according to Stanford School of Medicine. And a special added statistic today for our discussion on Adam Smith later comes from the Wall Street Journal and notes that 9 out of 10 of the largest leveraged buyouts in history have taken place in the last 18 months. The only exception was Colbert, Kravis, Roberts, and Company's takeover of RJR Nabisco back in 1989. We think that's a long way from Adam Smith. 
And because we have an embarrassment of riches before us, we're going to combine our quip of the day and joke of the day in the following. Jay Leno and David Letterman have been apparently working overtime of late, so we'd like to share some of their selections. Letterman. How many people saw the Bush State of the Union address? Boy, I can still hear the echoes of meaningless standing ovations. Said Jay Leno, world-famous soccer player David Beckham is coming to the U.S. Beckham is expected to have a huge impact. They say he could change the way Americans ignore soccer. Letterman. Bush uh, finally talked about global warming in his State of the Union address. He's unveiling a new plan. I believe it's called the No Ice Cap Left Behind. Leno. Well, I don't want to say Bush got a cold reception from the Democratic-controlled Congress, the State of the Union, but I think Saddam got a warmer reception at his hanging. Letterman. Bush admitted to making mistakes in Iraq. It says he's learned from these mistakes and will do better in Iran. And final comment from Jay Leno on the State of the Union address. You know, I'll give President Bush credit, though. He addressed the problems troubling Americans. The war in Iraq, the economy, the need to develop alternative fuels. He seemed to know what we were thinking. It's almost as if he was reading our mail or listening to our phone calls. And as some follow-up on last week's show, we discussed Bad Translations, the legendary English as she is spoke by Pedro Carolino. We had one other item to add. This was instructions for using an electric shaver from the Sacramento Bee a couple weeks back. According to these instructions, you should, quote, smuggle the razor blade on your muscle vertically, then drag your skin and shave back slowly. We hope that's clear. And in some uh, not amusing at all follow-up regarding our discussion a few months back with Rita Malouf and Leila Anani about events in Lebanon, the Bush administration is now confirming that Israel may have violated agreements with the U.S. when it fired U.S.-supplied cluster munitions into southern Lebanon during the war last summer. Writing in the Independent of London, Andrew Buncombe noted that Israel received widespread condemnation last year after it was accused of littering Lebanon with thousands of unexploded bombs in the final hours of the war. We had a first-hand report on this program confirming that. Now the State Department uh, is saying that Israel breached agreements with the U.S. over its use of the weapon, which can kill or injure a disproportionate number of children when they are picked up or trod on. Bush administration officials expect little further action on this matter, but sanctions against Israel for misusing cluster bomb weapons would not be unprecedented. The Reagan administration imposed a six-year ban on cluster weapons sales to Israel in 1982 after a congressional investigation found that Israel had used the weapons in civilian areas during its 1982 invasion of Lebanon. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for doing your own stunts after a drunken man running down a hallway tripped and crashed through a window on the 17th floor of a hotel in Minneapolis. Joshua Hansen, 29, plummeted 160 feet but hit an awning 
which broke his fall. He suffered only a broken leg. Experts said the intoxicated have a, quote, disproportionate survival rate, unquote, in such instances because their muscles are so relaxed. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't try this at home. Your results may vary. It was, uh, conversely, a bad week for education uh, last week with the news that 10% of U.S. college students think that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was made to advocate the abolition of slavery. And uh, last week was an ugly week for music fans everywhere when the Duluth, Minnesota Red Clay Theater and Arts Center announced that it will be producing a rock opera based on the story of runaway bride Jennifer Wilbanks. Said Mark Pitt, the theater's owner, the show will focus on how the community came together over the case of the runaway bride and bonded over the experience which of course included a massive search for Will Banks before she turned up a few days later in New Mexico. Said Pitt, the show will not spoof Will Banks' infamous disappearance before her scheduled 2005 wedding. To which we can only say... For our part here at Radio Parallax, we have no idea whether Julia Roberts can sing. All right, from the Only in America file, we have the following. A Seattle school district has temporarily banned schools from screening global warming documentary An Inconvenient Truth. This decision came after complaints from parent Frosty Hardison. Apparently, Frosty, the father of seven children, is an advocate of creationism. And his reasoning is as follows, quote, Condoms don't belong in schools, and neither does Al Gore. The Bible says that in the end of times, everything will burn up, but that perspective isn't in the DVD. School board officials, according to the article, we, we would say incredibly stupid and gutless school board officials, say the ban will be lifted for any teacher who accompanies Al Gore's film with another film representing, quote, an opposing view. How can this be? We wonder if Seattle schools teach that the earth is round and that it goes around the sun, because clearly that's not the view presented in the Bible. If another Frosty Hardison comes along, uh, who's a skinhead and objects to uh, representations in schools that the Holocaust actually happened, are we going to, like, hold up any presentations on that until they can present, quote, an opposing view, unquote? And uh, speaking of right-wing boneheads, we hope you caught the article by David Whitney from the Sacramento Bee Washington Bureau in the paper last weekend. Said Whitney, Senator Barbara Boxer will open the great debate over how to combat global warming when the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee begins hearings Tuesday. The former committee chair, Senator James Inhofe, Republican Oklahoma, called global warming a media hoax. Whitney included some great quotes from Barbara Boxer and John Doolittle. Whitney asked Barbara Boxer, what convinces you that global warming is real? The answer was, 11 National Academies of Sciences, including our own. 
All the leading scientists have said that. The list can go on and on and on. Even the biggest businesses that would have to pay a price agree. I think there is consensus, and anyone who doesn't say that just hasn't done the research. A follow-up question, what do you say to those people? Boxer, I say do the research, just read the papers, look at the facts. Doolittle, on the other hand, agrees with Senator Inhofe that uh, global warming is a myth. According to the article, Representative John Doolittle said recently he agrees and cites Michael Crichton, a medical doctor best known for his techno-thrillers. Crichton, Doolittle said, postulates in his book State of Fear about how you create this unthinkable catastrophe and then get some people to buy into the most dire solutions. Doolittle thinks global warming fits that mold. We would like to remind listeners at this juncture that Michael Crichton, although he received a medical degree, never practiced medicine. He is not a scientist, let alone an atmospheric scientist. And when confronted in public forums by the likes of Michael Shermer, the author of the Skeptics column in Scientific American, Crichton has backed down on his hoax hypothesis regarding global warming. Someone may need to send an email to Congressman Doolittle about that. Because when asked, do you think global warming is not scientifically proven? He answered, that's correct. I don't think it's scientifically proven. What they will say is the consequences are so dire that we can't afford to wait until it's scientifically proven. We have to make a computer model projecting about what would happen and then change our policies in order to avoid catastrophe. My point is that we need to act on science, not conjecture. And this is speculation. In other speculative news, according to the International Herald Tribune, the main international scientific body assessing the causes of climate change is closing in on its strongest statement yet linking emissions from burning fossil fuels to rising global temperatures. This comes in the wake of speculation about the meaning of an ancient ice shelf the size of Manhattan Island breaking off its base near the North Pole and floating out to sea. The Ailes ice shelf, nine miles long and 100 feet thick, cracked free from its home on the northern coast of Canada back in August 2005. Scientists only detected the floating shelf recently when satellite images captured it drifting toward oil rigs and shipping stations in the Beaufort Sea. Until a recent jump in Arctic temperatures, the Ailes shelf had remained frozen and attached to land for 3,000 years. Of 3,900 ice shelves surveyed in 1906, 90% have now disappeared. Arctic expert Warwick Vincent told the Associated Press, This is a dramatic and disturbing event. We are losing remarkable features of the Canadian North that have been in place for many thousands of years. We are crossing climate thresholds, and these may signal the onset of accelerated change ahead. Now, as far as we know, uh, Michael Crichton does not have a home up on the Beaufort Sea, so he apparently missed the floating away of this ice shelf. We do hope that he does get around to writing a uh, novel about this so that some of our local congressmen can get informed about scientific developments. Anyway, why are we being so hard on John Doolittle today? Well, because he deserves it. In an interview with Peter Hecht in the Sacramento Bee uh, last week, (laughs) Doolittle urged lawmakers to end bickering in the wake of the Democratic takeover of Congress. Noted Peter Hecht, Doolittle was long one of the House's most vocal partisans and a rising star during the Republicans' ironclad rule. 
now a member of the minority party, he said a little conciliation from the Democrats would go a long way. Said Doolittle, if I were Nancy Pelosi, I would say, let's make bipartisanship work. We'd like to hear him say first, if I were John Doolittle, and I am, I'm sorry that for years we made no effort to make bipartisanship work when we were in charge. Once he makes a statement like that, then he could go forward to speculating as to what he'd do if he were Nancy Pelosi. Anyway, we think the question of this whole global warming issue is, what can we do to stop this or slow it down? Not, is it happening? Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple items from our friend Brad Friedman, which he has posted at bradblog.com. Brad's website uh, noted the fact that last week in Cleveland, two election workers were convicted of rigging a recount of the 2004 presidential election to avoid a more thorough review in Ohio's most populous county, being Cleveland. Jacqueline Maiden, elections coordinator of the Cahoga County Elections Board, and ballot manager Kathleen Dreamer each were convicted of a felony count of negligent misconduct of an elections employee. They were also convicted of one misdemeanor count each of failure of elections employees to perform their duty. Prosecutors accused Maiden and Dreamer of secretly reviewing pre-selected ballots before a public recount on December 16, 2004. They worked behind closed doors for three days to pick ballots they knew would not cause discrepancies when checked by hand. Were there discrepancies, of course, a recount would have been dictated by law. Sentencing for Maiden and Dreamer is scheduled for February 26th. They face a possible sentence of 6 to 18 months for the felony conviction. In the meantime, they're still working for the elections board. And you really should go to Brad Blog for the visual that accompanies this one. Let me quote from, uh, from the piece. How dumb are these guys at Diebold? Well, it was revealed in the course of last summer's landmark virus hack of a Diebold touchscreen voting system at Princeton that, incredibly, the company uses the same key to open every machine. It's also an easy key to buy at any office supply store since it's used for filing cabinets and hotel minibars. Said Brad, the Princeton Diebold virus hack, if you've been living in a cave, found that a single person with 60 seconds of unsupervised access to the system who either picked the lock, easy in 10 seconds, or simply had the key, could slip a vote-swapping virus onto a single machine, which could then undetectably affect every other machine in the county to steal an election. But the folks at Princeton who discovered the hack had resisted showing exactly what the key looked like in order to hold on to some semblance of security for Diebold's disposable touchscreen voting system. But guess what? Diebold didn't bother to even have that much common sense. The company has a photograph of the key sitting on its own website's online store. Using uh, some blank keys purchased from Ace Hardware and the photograph on the website, a man named Ross Kennard constructed three keys which were then tested in a Diebold touchscreen machine. They worked. Is this the kind of company we want to trust to count votes here in California? Well, we think not. We're going to follow developments of the Secretary of State's office because Deborah Bowen is very much aware of some of these problems and seems intent upon doing something about it.
We need to take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. After we come back, we'll talk with a legend of American humor, P.J. O'Rourke. Stay tuned. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change. And it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family is broken and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. You've heard him on NPR with Peter Sagal. You've seen him on TV with Bill Maher. His books have been bestsellers. He's been about everywhere, seen lots of interesting stuff, and reported on it in articles and magazines as diverse as The Atlantic Monthly, The Weekly Standard, House and Garden, and Rolling Stone. He's P.J. O'Rourke, recognized as one of America's foremost satirists. His latest book is out this month. It's a look at Adam Smith and his 1776 classic, an Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. It's aptly titled, On the Wealth of Nations. Biocritic.org says, On the Wealth of Nations is a concise and humorous 200 pages, readable for a contemporary audience. It's better than the original. We're very pleased to say, P.J. O'Rourke, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hey, well, better than the original. I wouldn't go quite that far. The original contains some pretty original thinking. <laughs> Which the unoriginal lays no claim to. All right. Well, I, I am keen to discuss Adam Smith's classic work, but I would want to take a minute or two to establish your credentials for some of our younger listeners here in, in, in UC Davis's uh, station. Uh, back in 1974, when I was a student here, you and the late Doug Kenny put together what I thought at the time was the funniest thing I ever read, the National Lampoon 1964 High School Yearbook parody, and I would add that 33 years later, I still think it is the most <laughs> rolling-on-the-floor funny thing I've ever read. Is there any chance you're going to get the people at National Lampoon to reissue that? Well, you know, they did. Uh, uh, there is a little press uh, that is uh, there. I don't know who owns National Lampoon now. It's long ago degenerated into some sort of vomit movie uh, <laughs> operation. You know, every now, about every two years, they turn out a, a college vomit movie. Those of us who've been through college don't really need to see that again. They do have a, a print division, and about two years ago, they, they did reprint the high school yearbook, and I think you can probably still find it on Amazon. And I was glad to say that I thought it did stand up. I think there is something universal about the high school world that just doesn't change. Uh, you know, all the changes since, I mean, we, in 1974, we were parodying a 1964 high school yearbook, because we thought things had changed so much between 1964 and 1974. Of course, we were wrong. Things really hadn't changed at all. And, and we should have known that because when we researched this, Doug and I dug up all these high school yearbooks dating back to the 1920s, and they were exactly the same back then. High school just never changes. 
Well, I have a uh, original copy of it uh, stuck aside. Actually, I've got a couple of them back from 1974, and I, every once in a while, when I'm in a, in a mood, I'll just take it out, and I still a good laugh. Well, next time I'm out there, I'll sign Miss. Ar- I played Miss Armbruster, the girls' gym teacher. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> well, you've uh, you've traveled all over the world. You've pondered what works and doesn't work in numerous essays, both in magazine and then later on in book form. Did that lead you back to Adam Smith's original inquiry into the causes of a nation's wealth? Well, it did actually a few years back. About ten years ago, I wrote a book about uh, economics, sort of about economics. It was really about why, why some countries are rich and other countries are poor. It was called Eat the Rich. And what had led me to that was years of political reporting had, had, had made me come to believe that, or realize, I should say, that beneath politics, of course, there is an enormous amount of economics. And although I knew something about politics, we can hardly help know, but to know something about politics as much as it's in our face all every day, uh, I didn't know anything about economics. I was an English major, so I made myself learn some stuff about economics, and I, I got interested in fundamental principles. And then what happened was that Grove Atlantic, my publisher, is doing this series called uh, Books That Change the World. And what they're trying to do is get these great big books that are very important, like The Origin of Species and the Bible, for Koran, Das Kapital, books that, to tell the truth, we're probably never going to get all the way through. And then <laughs> pick people to write about these books, and they asked me if I would write about Adam Smith. And thinking back to the stuff I'd done on on economics, I thought, sure. And that was before I realized just how much it took me more than a year to do the reading. It didn't take me that long to write the book, but it took me more than a year to do the reading. It's a bit, it's a bit dense, isn't it? It is, and not only that, but there are really two books. Uh, Adam Smith wrote another book before The Wealth of Nations. It's about morality, it, 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 and he, without reading his, his book uh, uh, about morality, uh, you can't really understand what he's trying to do about materiality. And so, you, so you have to read the theory of moral sentiment, another big doorstop, uh, before you're really ready to begin on the wealth of nations. Hooey! Can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what we what we know about Mr. Adam Smith, his bio? Yes, I mean he was a uh, he was a professional intellectual. He was a college teacher. He was a uh, professor of uh, uh, of moral philosophy course that probably isn't taught quite as often as it ought to be these days and um, uh, he got interested in in economics essentially because he had this uh, uh, he had this idea for kind of a project of human betterment if you will sounds like a big task doesn't it but uh, 18th century they were willing to tackle things like this and so he was going to write a book tackling our, 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 our moral ideas, that was the theory of moral sentiments, our material life, that was the wealth of nations, and then he was going to do a third book about politics, which he never did, and in fact he burned the notes on his book about politics, and, and I think it was, I mean, we don't know this, but my guess is that it was because he was a moral philosopher, and in the end he's looking at politics and he's going, I'm not sure there's much place for philosophy in politics, and there's no place for morals. So I think he kind of gave up on the third part. Well, you summarize uh, Smith's principles in A Wealth of Nations as a trinity of pursuit of self-interest, division of labor, and freedom of trade. Um, Can we start with the most straightforward, perhaps, of the three, division of labor? What did Smith mean by that? 
I suppose the word we'd use today would be specialization, but it, but he also has a larger meaning there. It's not just that we split up tasks, which necessarily we do, but also that we have the freedom to learn skills and to choose our own jobs, and and, and then that that freedom naturally uh, 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 coincides with our our freedom to pursue our own self-interest. It also naturally coincides with the third part of the Trinity, which is freedom of trade, by which Smith just didn't mean just, you know, importing cheap plush toys from China. Uh, he meant that we should be free to exchange our goods and services, what we produce, with with uh, with other people and the goods and services that they produce without being interfered with, either by monopolists or by governments or by priests or whoever. Let's talk about the pursuit of self-interest. The late economist Milton Friedman used to say that uh, one of the few things you can absolutely count on is that the other guy will put his interests ahead of yours. Friedman regarded that as, uh, as right and proper. But uh, Adam Smith was really the first one to put forth the idea that much general good comes from the not necessarily intended consequences of people acting on their own behalf. That's the meaning of the invisible hand. Uh, people talk about uh, Adam Smith's use of the, of, the, of the metaphor, the invisible hand. And they often talk about this as though Smith was saying that there's an invisible hand, that if we just let capitalism run wild, there's this invisible hand that will make us all rich. That's not what he meant. He was simply talking, it was, his invisible hand was his way of saying unintended consequences. And Smith... Um, did not think it was right and proper that we put our own interests first in particular, but he did think that it was a fact that we do, and, and let's face it, and, and, and let's go with it. He said, however, in so doing, in putting our own self first, we don't mean to, but we help other people along by this. And he's talking about the, how you don't get your dinner from, 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 the, from the butcher and the baker and the brewer because they love you, because they're swell guys. They may or may not be. Uh, you get it because they are trying to promote their own self-interest, selling beer and steak and, 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 and bread. And, and he said, and it turns out that everybody benefits from that. You get your dinner, they get their living. And he said, we should, you know, we, we should work with this instead of trying to work against it. Well, let's talk about the, the third leg of the triangle, free trade. In the late, uh, late 1700s, Britain was involved in a mercantile system and had uh, many economic restrictions. What did Smith, uh, what were his thoughts on what would, needed to be done? Well, first and foremost, he thought it was a moral question that, that, that restricting trade, even between countries, is imposing upon individuals saying, oh, no, you cannot exchange your goods and services, what you produce, for any old goods and services. You can only exchange them for goods and services within this country. Or, or, or with people that we think we like this week, or, 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 or with people who are the right color or the right religion or something. And um, secondly, he was pointing out that, that, that the whole idea of restricting trade presumed that a positive trade balance, that is to say get, sending a lot of stuff overseas and getting a lot of money in return from it, was actually going to make you richer. And Smith was trying to point out, he said that the way I put it in the book was that imports are Christmas morning. Imports are getting stuff. Exports are the way we pay for how we get that stuff. Exports are January's Visa card bill. <laughs> Smith said, you've got it all backwards. Imports are the good things. We're getting all these good things from people. And exports are the way that we unfortunately have to pay for all those good things. 
Now, if we can get people to send us a lot of good things, the way the Chinese send us a lot of good things, and, and, and in return just give them pieces, little green pieces of paper, it's actually the Chinese who should be worried about this, not us. Let's talk a bit about, about China. Smith didn't worry about the balance of trade, and you don't, you're not concerned about it uh, terribly much yourself. Why no, do you think I'm it's not. such a non-issue? Well, I, I, I think it's a non-issue be, because people are under the, the misapprehension uh, that, that trade means that, that if you and I trade, that, that, that one of us is going to get the better deal. And they assume that any time there's a trade involved, uh, uh, you know, most people with, in terms of large ticket trading uh, don't do a lot of it. And, and, and so they think in terms of car dealers. Um, I happen to have grown up in a family of car dealers, so, so I know a little bit of what I'm speaking. They think they're basically going to get rooked, and they may get rooked at the car dealer. But what Adam Smith was pointing out is at the root of things, all free trades, all trades that are, that are done with freedom of will, that are not coerced, are mutually beneficial by definition. I've got something that, that, that I want less than what I want from you, and you want the thing that I've got more than what you've got, and we trade. It may be a stupid trade, it may be a lopsided trade, but that trade, we feel that trade mutually benefits us. And, and, and people have a tendency to think in zero-sum terms, to think that anything that makes me better off makes somebody else worse off, that if I have too many slices of the pizza, you've got to eat the Domino's box. And Smith was trying to point out that in the, in the modern world, the modern industrial world, even as it was just beginning in his era, that no, no, we produce more wealth. We, we can produce much, we can make more pizzas. Uh, it, it's not a matter of just dividing up one small pie. History seems to have proven Smith right on this issue about um, enlarging the whole pie, as it were. But uh, clearly some people still doubt that. Well, some people do, do doubt that because life is not fair. And, 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 and any attempt to make life fair requires such a huge mechanism of, of government interference is that an uh, invisible hand there, or, or some people call it the invisible foot of government, ends up th making things even more unfair. We have the example of communism in the old Soviet bloc to show us what happens when you try and make life perfectly fair for everybody. You get secret police enforcing fairness. I go through this a lot at my own house because uh, I've got a nine-year-old daughter, and of course, as nine-year-olds are inclined to do, she, she very frequently says to me, that's not fair. And when she does, I say to her, honey, you're cute. That's not fair. Your family's pretty well off. That's not fair. You were born in America. That's not fair. You had better just pray to God that things don't start getting fair for you. <laughs> you have some interesting uh, quotes in the book. Uh, Adam Smith did have a rather unromantic view of the wheelings and dealings of merchants and manufacturers, and you, you included a quote that said that uh, those people, quote, complain much of the bad effects of high wages in raising the price of their goods, both at home and abroad. They say nothing concerning the bad effects of high profit. They're silent with regard to the pernicious effects of their own gains. That's language that really sounds kind of like Michael Moore commenting on some of our CEOs. Absolutely. Smith was no, was no booster for capitalism. I mean, he looked at 
he looked at the free market with a cold, clear eye, and he knew that he he said that, that you know people in a certain line of business never get together, even for just for social pleasure, without it resulting in, to some extent in a conspiracy against the public. You know, every time the the, the, the plumbing supply contractors of America meet in Reno, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the cost of your sink traps is going to go up. You know. So he's, he's saying, you know, he's saying, you know, people are are are, are not. I mean, people are self-interested, and we have to keep a very careful eye. But but he said that that, that the purpose of government and the purpose of government regulation is to, to the greatest extent we can, make people more free, more free to compete with each other. And he he never felt that greed was good, but he felt that greed was an interesting controlling device. And he said. He said, gee, you know, merchants would really have us over a barrel, uh, would totally have us at this mercy if they could make agreements on what to charge things and what to pay people and stick to those agreements. He said, but somebody always cheats. They want to sell more, so they lower their price. They want to hire better people, so they up their wages in contravention to the agreement that they made with all the other merchants. So it's not that greed is good per se, but greed has an One of your most quoted lines is, giving money and power to governments like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Uh, very understandable sentiment, but, uh, but PJ, you've, you've been around the world. You've seen what, it's, uh, what it means to have almost no functioning government. Uh, so don't you agree that a system for establishing societal ground rules, i.e. sound government, is, is actually vital to a free society? Probably the single most important thing, and if I had uh, to go back and uh, and rework uh, the uh, the book that I wrote about international economics, about the, uh, eat the rich, about why some countries are rich and others are poor, I would pay much more attention to what Smith called jurisprudence, or we would call rule of law. Rule of law is absolutely essential. And it may well even be better to have bad, well, it is better to have bad laws, at least up to a point, than it is to have no laws. I mean, uh, we, we would rather live in, in, say, communist Czechoslovakia than we would care to live in modern Somalia. So, so, so a legal system is extremely important, and a government is extremely important. That doesn't mean we should expect government to be good. That doesn't mean the government is good in of itself. It merely means that the fact of government, uh, that invisible hand, one more time, uh, uh, has some very good effects. Well, Adam Smith has proven to be one of the most influential thinkers in history, but The Wealth of Nations is probably an example of a classic as described by Mark Twain, in that it's a book everybody wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. Do you think... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> do, you, do you think in the wake of your, your book, people are going to go out and read him? Yes, I, I hope so. I, I think that what my book does in part is that it gives people a little bit of a map to show them what parts of, the, of this 900-page monolith and, and of, uh, uh, of the theory of moral sentiments of the book that comes before it, what parts they'll be most interested in reading, and they say, can go read that. Remember, Smith was inventing economics, and so he had to invent all sorts of measurements and comparisons that we take for granted. I mean, he invented the concept of gross domestic product, but that's not something, but he couldn't just abbreviate it to GDP. He had to explain the entire idea, and that took pages and pages. Well, for the record, your book finally got me to go out and purchase a copy of it, so I, for one, do plan to get through it. Excellent. <laughs> 
And final comment, uh, your, the cover of your book, Age and Guile, Beat Youth, Innocence, and a Bad Haircut, is really is an American classic and sort of emblematic of this show. <laughs> uh, it happens to us all, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, P.J. Rook, we're just about out of time, so I just want to say then uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me on the show. All righty. The book is On the Wealth of Nations, and we've been speaking with author P.J. O'Rourke about it and the legendary Adam Smith, who wrote the original 1776 classic, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Our guest has written 14 books previously, including works such as Republican Party Reptile, along with numerous magazine articles for the likes of The Weekly Standard, The Atlantic Monthly, and Rolling Stone. He's also co-author of what this correspondent uh, thinks of as the funniest thing he's ever read, the 1964 high school yearbook parody from National Lampoon. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. We're sad to report in this, our obituary section of the program, the passing of one of the voices you hear on this composition, that of Denny Doherty of the Mamas and the Papas. The group consisted of Denny, singer Cass Elliott, and John Phillips and Michelle Gilliam. They crossed boundaries and genres with their vibrant, full-blooded harmonies, and I think you can definitely hear the magic of the synthesis of those four voices as follows. documentary that aired about 15 years ago, Denny referred to that uh, magical quality that was achieved when those voices blended perfectly. They had a name for it. I think I forget what it was. Just call it Gene. But they would refer to it as, well, yeah, yeah, Gene's here. Gene's in the room when they were all on. Noted a rock critic, the Mamas and Papas would have been nothing without John Phillips's songs and arrangement. But this is not to deny Denny Doherty's remarkable contribution. He helped to create those extraordinary harmonies. He was a fantastic singer, and you can tell that he loved singing. Said the independent, the good-natured Doherty, who was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1940, played in a local rock and roll band, The Hepsters, in his teens. In 1959, with friend Zal Yanofsky, they became the Halifax Three and secured a recording contract in New York. Their records, however, were unsuccessful. Doherty and Yanofsky would become bartenders on the campus of Georgetown University. With a view to infusing rock music with the energy of the Beatles, they formed the Mugwumps with Cass Elliot on vocals. In late 1964, John Phillips was in a folk group, The Journeyman, along with his wife, Michelle Gilliam. He added Doherty to, some, to open some shows for comedian Bill Cosby. In January 65, they took a holiday in the Virgin Islands and developed a new group, with a contemporary sound. Their benefactor there, Hugh Duffy, was credited in Phillips' self-mocking hit Creek Alley in 1967. Although Cass Elliott visited them in the Virgin Islands, John Phillips didn't think her voice possessed enough range for the group. And now I'm, I'm, 
I'm quoting from the Independent on the following. Fortuitously, a lead pipe fell on her head, and after she recovered, her singing voice improved. We have our doubts about the last, but uh, according to the article, but according to the article, John Phillips took a job delivering a limousine to Los Angeles after returning to the States. The others climbed on in and rehearsed harmonies on the way across the country. In L.A., their friend Barry McGuire introduced them to Lou Adler, the owner of his record label, Dunhill, and they were given a contract. McGuire had had a smash with Eve of Destruction, and he had to make an album. Lou Adler wanted him to try California Dreamin'. It didn't sound too good, but Lou Adler liked the track, and the background vocals were great. Lou said, suppose we cut it with Denny on lead. And that's what happened. The recording with Denny as the lead vocalist became a smash hit on both sides of the Atlantic. The Mamas and the Papas became rich. Denny Doherty bought a mansion in Laurel Canyon and in true hippie fashion allowed any of his friends to stay there. The group was partying so much they gave less than 50 concerts during their three years together. John Phillips, however, organized the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 and the Mamas and Papas appeared alongside Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and The Who. Phillips's anthem for the festival, San Francisco, parentheses, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair, was passed to his friend Scott McKenzie. It became a transatlantic number one hit, and more importantly, a hippie anthem. Despite the peace and love vibes of the time, the mamas and other papa were angry that John Phillips had given the song away. In the year 2000, National Public Radio presented a list of the 100 most important American musical works of the 20th century. We think on general principles you should look that up on the web and have a listen, but in particular regarding today's show, the song Dream a Little Dream of Me made the list. Birds singing in the sycamore tree Dream a little dream of me it was an obscure song written in 1931, but the Mamas and the Papas turned it into a great hit in 1968. The Mamas and the Papas broke up in 1968 because various members wanted to go solo. Denny had a solo hit on the adult contemporary chart in 1974 with a rendition of the standard You'll Never Know. He went on to host a popular variety show in Canada. Denny Doherty died on January 19th of this year in the Toronto suburb of Mississauga after a brief illness. We are most sorry to note his passing, but are grateful for his musical legacy. Sweet dreams till sunbeams find you Sweet dreams that leave all worries behind you But in your dreams, whatever they be Dream a little dream And in other music news, we have this item from the Orange County Register, repeated in the Sacramento Bee earlier this month. About two years ago, University of California, Irvine professor Fan Gang Zeng started noticing something alarming about his students, unexplained hearing loss. In each of his biomedical engineering classes, Zeng said he found several students with a type of damaged hearing you normally wouldn't see until a person is 50 or 60 years old. It's been two years since that phenomenon began, and that's about how long it's been since the MP3 player became a campus staple for college students nationwide. Coincidence? Zeng doesn't think so. 
Hearing experts think the problems are probably caused by the use of earbuds that sit inside the ear, coupled with the increasing length of listening time available compared with previous portable music players. Most MP3 players come with stock earbuds, which, unlike headphones that sit outside the ear, fit snugly in the ear canal and do not allow any sound to escape. Because the sound is digital, listeners can crank it up louder without the distortion allowed by previous technologies. Note of the article, by the time you feel pain in your ears from loud noises, your hearing has been permanently damaged. Quote, the kind of hearing loss we're talking about is not going to show up when they're teenagers, unquote, said Brian Fleegor, director of diagnostic audiology at Children's Hospital Boston. Fleegor compared the damage to the cumulative effect of too many sunburns on the skin. Dr. Fleegor has just finished a study of headphones used with MP3 players and advises users not to turn the volume up higher than 80% and to limit their listening time to 90 minutes. We call it the 80 for 90 guideline, he said. UCI's Zeng said he would like to see an automatic shutoff device on the players that turn them off at a certain time based on volume. We're not sure if that's the solution, but for God's sake, be careful, dear listener. And speaking of deafness, we have the following, written by Jonathan Weissman in the Washington Post. The Democrats were joyful when they seized control of both houses of Congress in November, but now the new Congress is facing its first major dilemma. An overwhelming majority of Democratic senators and House members oppose President Bush's plan to send 21,500 additional troops to Iraq. And so do, the polls indicate, most Americans. But party leaders are reluctant to use the one weapon at their disposal to stop the deployment, cutting off the funding necessary to support the extra troops. Instead, to the dismay of the party's anti-war base, both the House and Senate are expected to pass non-binding resolutions opposing the troop, quote, surge, unquote, so they can't be accused of undercutting the war. In effect, they're choosing to stand by and let Bush take full responsibility for whatever happens next. Republican strategist Tony Fabrizio noted, Well, the first rule of politics is never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. And maybe that is the first rule of politics, but it seems increasingly clear to Americans that we are making a huge mistake in Iraq. Shouldn't the Democrats take the bull by the horns here? Yes, you'll gain politically by standing back and observing the smoking crater left in the ground uh, by Bush's mismanagement of the war in the Middle East. But really, wouldn't it be better to avoid that catastrophe? 3,000 Americans have died in that conflict, which has now lasted longer than World War II. Credible estimates put Iraqi losses at 600,000. We think the Democrats need to step up to the plate on this. Noted the Bites column in the Sacramento News and Review. If you ask Bites, Representative Doris Matsui, Democrat Sacramento, has it coming. That's in giving her a grade of D for duplicitous. Matsui claims she opposes the war in Iraq, but refuses to publicly commit to cutting off additional funding. For the past several weeks, members of the Sacramento Coalition to End the War have camped out in Matsui's local office at the federal courthouse in an attempt to force the congressman to reconcile her opposing positions one way or the other. How about this surprising item related to the war in Iraq? Apparently Sweden is taking in more Iraqi refugees than any other country in Europe. Last year, 8,900 Iraqis applied for asylum in Sweden, nearly as many as the entire rest of the EU. 
There are now more than 80,000 Iraqis in Sweden, making them the largest immigrant group after Finns. Most Iraqi refugees settled closer to home in the Middle East. The UN Refugee Agency estimates that as many as 1 million displaced Iraqis currently live in Syria. An estimated 700,000 are in Jordan, 80,000 in Egypt, and 40,000 in Lebanon. And dovetailing off our remarks here about Doris Matsui, John Doolittle, etc., we have the following from the Washington Post. Now that they're in the minority, droves of Republican House members are breaking party discipline and voting for legislation sponsored by Democrats. The Democrats' minimum wage increase drew 82 Republican votes. Their Homeland Security bill, 68. Said Representative Joanne Emerson, Republican of Missouri, you're freer to vote your conscience. What a concept. A a legislator voting for what he or she thinks is best. It's a wacky idea. We'll have to see how that pans out. We note here, looking at the sprawling pile in front of us, that we have just too many items to catch up on with a few minutes left on today's show. Therefore, on next week's program, we are going to have a no major guest. We're just going to try and proceed with a little help from our friends. This means I hope to be joined by some of my uh, fellow KDVS DJs and hosts as well as uh, revisit some of our previous guests on the program. In particular, I'm interested in speaking with Dr. Andrew Nangalama. Dr. Nangalama is a physician from Uganda, and in the wake of seeing the last King of Scotland a few days back, I'd like to get uh, some, of his, um, some of his remarkable story before you. The good doctor had to flee the political chaos of Uganda and escape uh, Africa by way of Kenya. As a young man, uh, Idi Amin came to his father's house, his father being a local uh, uh, village political head, and I'm sure he's going to have some interesting observations about what happened uh, in the 1970s under the, the incredible regime of Idi Amin Dada. We're still sitting on top of a New Year's Day article in the Sacramento Bee titled Flood Risk DVD, now part of pitch for Natomas Homes, which quoted a Mike Pettis and his wife Marguerite, who... Uh, noted that when they purchased a home in the North Natomas area and asked, is it a flood zone? People selling the home said no. And that was the extent of their conversation. We suggest that if the rains uh, do return uh, later this year or in years to come, uh, that you not go shopping in the Natomas area with high water because if there's a breach of the levee, you're going to be about 20 feet underwater. We will return to that topic. But I just want to close today noting an article by Chris Ann Becker in the Sacramento News and Review dated November 30th, titled None Dare Call It Sprawl, about the Natomas area. To quote from it briefly, North Natomas was supposed to be a walkable, bikeable, smart growth community, but it isn't. Housing tracks are so far away from schools, stores, and jobs that everybody's completely dependent on their cars. Though smart growth policies were incorporated into a community plan that was improved in 1994, recommendations the city found were not the same as regulations. Grand visions of unique, inviting spaces integrated into neighborhoods and clustered near light rail stations never materialized, nor did the light rail stations. I don't know how many urban planners we have here at UCD or people involved in that listening to this program, but I I do want to say that In this correspondent's opinion, a simple drive around North Natomas will provide an excellent example of all the things you probably shouldn't do when it comes to urban sprawl. I was pretty horrified in seeing what I saw while driving around there, but we must 
Save that for next week because we're out of time. We'd like to thank P.J. O'Rourke for joining us from a radio studio somewhere in New York City. We have been trying to get him on the show for a long time and glad to have finally achieved that. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Todd will, uh, will join us momentarily, and we will see you next week at the same time. Thank you.